back of our hymnals. Turn in the back of your hymnals to page 936, and also we'll look at Luke 23. Luke 23. And then we'll look at uh, section 5 of the Westminster Confession, chapter 28, um, regarding baptism. So let's take the Lord's word first. Um, Luke 23, starting at 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuses or hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And then the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, section 5. Although it be a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance. Yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Let's pray together. We ask our beloved Lord that you would help us to gain understanding and appreciation for this beautiful sacrament of baptism and help us, we pray, to, uh, to think scripturally according to what your word reveals unto us. Help us in these things, for we ask it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. I'd like us to begin by focusing on the first section of this portion of the confession where it says... It is a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance or sacrament of baptism. Now, it talks about baptism being an ordinance here. Now, what is an ordinance? Uh, I would say one way to define an ordinance is something that God has commanded for the church to practice. Um, An example of an ordinance is also making disciples. Christ says to go to all nations and make disciples, teaching them all things that he's commanded. That's an ordinance. God tells us we ought to do that. 
but making disciples is not a sacrament. So here's, here's an interesting one. Every ordinance is not a sacrament, but you could say that every sacrament is an ordinance because all the sacraments are commanded. He commands us to baptize. He commands us to remember him and, and to uh, have the Lord's Supper as we did earlier today. Those are both ordinances and sacraments. But here the, the confession uses um, the words this ordinance. So again, it's an ordinance but also a sacrament. Now the word there, uh, contemn, um, that's an older way of saying to treat with contempt. And we don't use that word anymore, but um, again, for you kids, a definition of contempt is uh, to treat something as considered worthless. Um, for instance, um, I have armadillos that dig up my garden at four in the morning, five in the morning. I have contempt that I consider them worthless or below worthless. I, I have great contempt for the armadillos. Well, um, that's the word you could say that they have. Some, some might have contempt, you say, uh, regarding um, baptism. Now, on a broad spectrum, those who aren't part of the church don't just have contempt for baptism. They have contempt for preaching. They have contempt for the Lord's Supper. They have contempt for prayer. They have contempt for praise and worship. They have contempt for everything the church does. But I think what is going on here in section 5, it's focusing maybe on someone who might be in the church but doesn't really care about baptism as being important. Again, the uh, the other uh, thing here is that they might neglect this ordinance. Well, it's just enough for me to hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. I don't care about being baptized. I just want to believe in Jesus and I can rest assured that I'm saved because I have faith in Christ. That can happen. I want us to turn to a passage of Scripture that G.I. Williamson uses in his book. And it seems to be a very forceful passage. Uh, Exodus 4. Exodus 4. This is just before Moses goes on. Um, I'm going to read a little bit earlier to get some context here. Um, We'll start at verse 21. This will give you some of the context of what's going on. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now here's the passage in particular that we need to focus on. Verse 24, following. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him that's Moses, to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. 
At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, interesting that God was rather angry, you could say, or he was ready to execute judgment of basically putting Moses to death because Moses, I guess you could say, he delayed the circumcision of his son. But his wife intervenes and she does it and God um, doesn't go and take the life of Moses. That have been pretty that have been a terrible event uh, for the Exodus if, if Moses would have been put to death for not circumcising his child. But thank God for a, a wise wife who, who does what is necessary there. So G.I. Williamson um, says this regarding um, Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 28, Section 5. If baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus, which is to be continued in his church until the end of the world, then it follows that it is a great error to depreciate or to neglect it. If neglect of circumcision elicited the wrath and displeasure of God against Moses, Exodus 4, and if the spurning of the baptism of John by the Pharisees and lawyers is likewise condemned, Luke 7.30, then how much more are, ought to we consider the gravity of a like disposition toward that which God or which the Lord has commanded? And it is important to remember that God's wrath against Moses was not because Moses had neglected the ordinance for himself, but because he had neglected the circumcision of his child. Baptism is a moral duty, and a person who could be baptized or who could present his child for baptism but will not is in a very different position from a person who would not be baptized who would be baptized but cannot. There are instances in which it is physically impossible for a believer to receive the sacrament. And there he cites Luke 23. Remember the thief on the cross that we read of just a little while ago? He could not. He was incapable of coming down and being baptized. So he was incapable. So that's a different story than someone who has opportunity yet neglects getting the sacrament. Again, this argument here is based on a continuity between circumcision and baptism. Our belief is that circumcision has been replaced by baptism. Um, that's why in the New Testament, Paul rebukes those who want to still be circumcised to be saved because circumcision is no longer considered as the valid sacrament or sign. The new sign according to Jesus, is being baptized with water. Uh, confession, I mean, the confession goes on to say, although it is a great sin to neglect baptism, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed, you could say attached, unto it, or baptism. There is a relationship between salvation and baptism, but one does not equal the other. Being baptized doesn't automatically mean you're saved. And uh, we, we want to look at a particular passage of a person who, <coughs> who was saved, 
who was assured of eternal life, yet never baptized. Again, let's look back at Luke 23. Luke 23. And this time we'll start reading at 35. The people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also, mocking him, uh, coming up to him, offered him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now this was also written as an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. Now the criminals... Um, they're following the same thing that the crowds are doing, and they're following suit, or actually the one criminal. Um, one of the criminals um, who were hanging there um, was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what is what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he, has, he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Man, this man was saved. This man never received the baptism of the, the Christian baptism. But he was saved nonetheless. Now, J.C. Ryle writes something very beautiful. Uh, if you have this book, it's worth looking at, and it's very readable. It's called the um, Expositions, Expositional Thoughts, uh, I'm sorry, Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. J.C. Ryle, Expository Thoughts on the Gospel. I'm going to read a portion of, that's, of this that's not in your notes, but there, there's a brief portion in your notes. J.C. Ryle wrote this, we are told that two malefactors were crucified together with the Lord, one on his right and the other on his left. Both were equally near to Christ. Both saw and heard all that happened. During the six hours that he hung on the cross, both were dying men and suffering acute pain. Both were alike wicked sinners and needed forgiveness. Yet one died in his sins as he had lived, hardened, impenitent, and unbelieving. The other believed, cried to Jesus for mercy, and was saved. Now, he's, he goes on and talks about the, the nature of why God saves one and why God saves the other. And in, uh, he talks about the, the doctrine of election here. But he goes on to say, he goes on to say this, um, that we are not going to get all the answers regarding why one receives the gospel and one doesn't. It is our own duty to, to make it plain and clear. We are to make diligent use of all the means by which God has appointed for the good of souls. God's sovereignty was never meant to destroy man's responsibility. One thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but one, but only one, that no sinner might presume. In other words, 
if both thieves were saved, maybe there would be a, a, a little bit more room for presumption. But one was saved and one was not. So again, one thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. Let's put it another way. I want us to consider something called a deathbed. Uh, for you kids, a deathbed is when your person is so ill, they lay in the bed and they're, they're never able to get up again until they die. That's a person residing in a deathbed. Um, and yes, a deathbed conversion can happen, but maybe they don't happen as often as you would think so that we shouldn't presume. But at the same time, don't despair because it can happen, right? And I think that's the same argument here. But J.C. Ryle writes this again. We are to make diligent use of all the means which God has appointed for the good of souls. Now, what are the means here? Uh, according to the Confession of Faith, the means of grace, or um, in particular, uh, most com- fully, the Word, the sacraments, and the prayer. And prayer. So, the Word, the Word read, the Word studied, the Word heard, the Word heard, especially preaching, in preaching, the sacraments, baptism in the Lord's Supper, and prayer. Those are the means that we are to make use of. Uh, for the good appointed to souls. The chief sacrament here to consider is baptism. Now, it would be presumption from someone to say, well, you know what? There was a thief on the cross that was saved and didn't get baptized. Maybe I don't have to desire baptism myself. I could just, I could be like him, right? I think that would be presumptuous. Do you think if this man was able to have his sentence, um, let's say, delayed for another five days. Take him down from the cross, and then his sentence would be delayed, and he'd be crucified five days later. Do you think that man would have desired to be baptized? Absolutely. But he was kind of tied up and unable to be baptized. So here's the case again. Somebody's able to do it, but they don't do it, and they're trying to compare it to someone who's fully unable physically whatsoever to get down and to be baptized because he's nailed to a cross. Section 5 <coughs> um, says, Grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it, that's baptism, not so inseparably connected unto it that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly Regenerated. So section 5, putting it another way, says, One can be born again, yet not ever receive baptism. However, if such a person is properly taught, and they are born again, I think they should be encouraged, directed, and even be willing to be baptized and receive that sacrament. Also, this section says that having received baptism does not automatically mean that you are born again. (coughs) Um, We believe the sacrament of baptism is for newborns of covenant parents, whether one or both parents. That will be the subject, the entire subject for the next message in the Sunday evening. Um, 
But having said this, the Book of Church Order, the BCO we call it, upholds a great deal of responsibility for parents to diligently teach and pray for their children. And I'm going to show you that the, the position of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is that we baptize our children because we know that the promise is unto you and to your children according to Genesis 17, according to Acts 2. Um, however, there is a responsibility both of parents and as the child grows older, there's a responsibility of the child to embrace the faith of their parents. So no one in the OPC goes to a child and says, um, you're baptized, rest in that. Or to teach their children this kind of language, look unto your baptism for growth in the assurance of your salvation. I've been in some circles years back that later on went into some federal vision type theology and some of them would say this, look unto your baptism. We'd rather say look unto Christ, but also look unto what your baptism means. But ultimately, you don't look unto your baptism to be saved, you look unto what Jesus has done for you to be saved. Um, The BCO of the OPC says this, And it gives some language that talks about um, the beauty and richness of this sacrament. Parents are to vow publicly their duty as Christian parents to present their children for baptism and to nurture them in the Christian faith by answering these or equivalent questions in the affirmative. Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to condemnation, They are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace and as children of the covenant are to be baptized. We would say yes. Do you promise, and I'm I'm putting the name in Greg here, not because I'm thinking of Greg in this church, I'm just giving the name of a kid, um, a baby. Do you promise to teach diligently, do you promise to teach diligently to Greg the principles of our holy Christian faith revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms of this church. In other words, you're not going to just presume he's saved. You're going to teach them the doctrine, the rich doctrine of the Reformed faith. Do you promise to pray regularly with and for Greg and to set an example of piety and godliness before him. You're not presuming he's saved. You're going to pray for him. Pray that God give him a new heart. Do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring Greg up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, encouraging him to appropriate for himself the blessings and fulfill the obligations of the covenant? This last one needs a little bit of explanation because um, most of us probably don't use the word appropriate too much. The last question of this um, OPC uh, Book of Church Order here encourages Greg to take responsibility to imp- embrace Christ for himself. Greg is told to appropriate, you could say to take hold of the Holy Christian faith as his own. And that is how he is to obtain the blessings and fulfill the obligations of the covenant. This is far, far away from what we would call baptismal regeneration.
which assumes the child is um, saved um, by merely being baptized only. Now, there are some, um, maybe very few people, but there are some who would believe that you're, you're saved automatically when you receive baptism. I've had a, a friend in, in the Catholic Church in college, and she said that when she had received a confirmation that she was given the Holy Spirit, that's what the confirmation means when she was confirmed in the Catholic Church. Isn't that kind of presumptuous that you could, a man can get up wearing a robe and do, a, a, do some sort of sacrament and give the Holy Spirit to someone by will? It's the same kind of presumption here that as a minister has the power to, when he baptizes that he's going to automatically regenerate a child. But again, that's not anything of, of, at all of what we teach or the confession teaches or anything of what the Holy Bible teaches. But this sacrament, it's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done, but also it entails promises. It's a sign and seal of what Christ has done for us. And we, as we are baptized, we are to receive it by faith and um, are to have that practice done in a way that is pleasing unto the Lord. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this holy sacrament of baptism as a sign and seal of of the work that you have done for us through Christ our Lord, um, that we have been buried um, with Christ and that we have been raised again from the dead through Christ's resurrection. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, uh, help us especially as those who have uh, children to not presume, but Lord, to be diligent to teach our children the truths of Holy Scripture. Lord, that we would raise our children up in the fear and admonition of you, O God, Lord, help us to grow in grace and to grow in understanding and a great appreciation for the wonderful things you've done for us through Christ our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. For our closing hymn, let's uh, close with turning to 239. Praise my soul, the King of heaven.